Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's bi-weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, uh, recorded at the PW offices in New York City. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm also Co-Editor of PW Comics World, as well as the Graphic Novel Review Editor for Publishers Weekly and the Editor-in-Chief of The Beat at www.comicsbeat.com. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer, and I write for both PWCW and The Beat. And you can also uh, find um, uh, generally find most of the things we talk about on this program at publishersweekly.com slash comics. This is part two of our Jack Kirby birthday special podcast. And now, back to the podcast. But I, ironically, I will say uh, that uh, when I first encountered Kirby's work as a kid reading Marvel Comics, I was raised more on the relevant 70s stuff, and I'll be honest, I didn't like it. In fact, when I found a Kirby comic, I set it aside in the pile and uh, did not continue reading The Eternals. I recently found a copy of The Eternals at a, uh, a sale by, being run by Frank Santoro, and it was the first Jack Kirby comic I'd ever encountered. And uh, I meant to read it before this, but unfortunately, because of time consistencies, I didn't. But maybe I'll read it and drop it in. But um, anyway, uh, I was not a fan. I didn't get the Eternals. Um, I mean, I don't feel that that was his best work. It was probably his most spectacular work, but it didn't appeal to what I was looking for at the time. So I, I didn't like... Uh, some of the inks I didn't like it you know it didn't appeal to me as a teenager and then as time went on I mean of course I you know was in school by whoever I was hanging out with at the time you know that I needed to treat this guy with respect so of course I did and uh, not like a punk kid but um, <laughs> you know then as the I was one of those who was persuaded by the battle for his artwork and mm-hmm. I still have a t-shirt that I got at a panel um, there's a picture which I put up on the beat just today of, of Alan Moore and Jack Kirby together. And yes, they did meet at this panel, which I was also attended, uh, where they were talking about getting back his artwork at the 1985 San Diego Comic Con. And uh, my, you know what? Now I'm, I'm mixing up two different events because Alan Moore was at one. It was the next year at 86 where they had this panel and they had these T-shirts that said "God Save the King," and I still have mine. Uh, so I was persuaded of. Uh, you know, the importance of his career by actually learning more about it and not being the art style that uh, I wasn't like Gene Cullen. So, you know, my own uh, reaction to Kirby is, uh, I think mostly, somebody just recently did a whole panel called, uh, you know, Abstract Art and Jack Kirby and, you know, have put up a Kandinsky next mm-hmm. to a Kirby. Yeah. And, I mean, the the uh, artistic outpouring was pretty much the same in both. And, in fact, structurally, mm-hmm. they're quite the same. And... Uh, you know, I, I just looking at the magnitude of his art, uh, I, I always say this, but I, I'm sure I've said this on this podcast before, but I, he was just born too soon. He had a vision that was one of a kind. And I mean, if he'd had the opportunities that, you know, Mobius had to do movie design work, um, I mean... Can you imagine Kirby today? Oh, oh I mean, he would God. be designing video games. Yeah. I mean, he would, you know, he would have TV specials. I mean, the animation would be incredible. I mean... It's uh, who knows what kind of digital yeah. comics he would be coming yeah. up with, uh, and, and on your point about abstract painting, I mean the the background of almost any Kirby cosmic blast would, could, would make Amazing. a great abstract painting right. in any any contemporary gallery. Kirby Grackle. Um, you know, I you know just briefly. I mean, I started reading Marvel comics during the Marvel years. I mean, I mean that's how old I am. I mean, I don't remember the first Jack Kirby comic I read. 
in those days, uh, and I'm talking about the mid-1960s, I was about 13, 12, 13 years old when I, when I discovered him. Uh, I had originally been a stone DC. You know, I read Batman. I read DC. Right. But DC comics at the time were so incredibly corny, I, it's hard to describe it now. There were a few I'm things so that were rich. better. But you, you, you could not compare the kind of dialogue that you got in a Marvel comic. If we start talking about a Fantastic Four, uh, or Spider-Man especially, uh, or, or, or uh, well, particularly the Fantastic Four, which was the avatar, frankly, of all, of all, all things led back to the Fantastic Four, for the kids in my neighborhood. I mean, we read everything, and we certainly read everything that Jack Kirby did. But the Fantastic Four was truly, we truly believe, the world's greatest comic book. Um, <laughs> there, there, was no, we, there was no arguing about right. uh, us with about that. But the, we just started to slowly realize that here was a comic that had really, the dialogue was simply nothing. It, it was fake real dialogue. It seemed more like real people than DC did. I mean, it, it, obviously, it, even, even Stanley's dialogue wasn't realistic. But it was, it was so fresh at the time. And then there was Kirby. Now, I, I vaguely remember basically discovering him during the Joe Sennett years, the Inkers, because I came to realize that his work sort of changed his look a little depending on who the Inkers was. Now, Dick Ayers was also a favorite of mine, but, but Sennett had that jagged, powerful, explosive energy. He seemed to really capture it. Later on, he became a little smoother, but still there was just no mistaking when Joe Sennett did, and Kirby did something together. So, I mean, my, my years back of looking at Kirby is, I, I got comics from all over the place, because in those days you would go to the mom and pop stores and they would have these racks of comics with the covers torn off. Oh, now, so, God, so horrible. So you would go, that's what I, and you could get them for five cents. So you would go into, because comics were, you know, 25 cents in those days, you know, come on. So, and I did go to the newsstands. I did comics to the newsstands. But then I realized that there were all these comics that I didn't have. And that, what you, the way you could get them back issues in these pre-direct market days. I didn't know anything about this, collectors. The coverless comics. You went oh, to, God. You, I would go from store to store through my entire neighborhood and you could find issues going way back at some of these. If it was in a neighborhood where maybe there weren't a lot of kids there, they may have issues going back years. So I would go, and that's how I would fill in my comic book collection. You know, and I could Do you, you still have any of these. That's another story. <laughs> that's another story. Calvin, no, I don't. No, I they, don't. Did they get Calvinized? You know what I did in uh, in 1970 or so, just as I was about to go to college, I decided that I'm reading real books now. I boxed up about 300, you know, comics. Silver Age comics, Marvel, mostly Marvel, but all across, all kinds of stuff. Hardly. I boxed them up and I took them to a comic shop and I sold them for $10. Now... They're, they were, as you well know, when looking at my comics, they were nowhere near yes. mint condition. For those who, this, since this is an audio medium, just we so you know, you, when Calvin reads a comic, I, at Gordon and a Process, I call Calvinizing. And, <laughs> I don't read uh, comics, I consume them. He consumes them, them and it, it is sort of like Galactus, the devourer of all comic <laughs> yes, books. Yes. Uh, once Calvin has read a book, he leaves his mark on it, and I'll leave it at that. Those comics, <laughs> we would read them, and then we would sit down and we would read them, and we would read them again. And again and again 
and and that's and, and pass that's, them around. And we and yes, and then pass them around. And I had cousins. I had cousins uh, out of town. In fact, who lived here in New York because I was. This is in Washington D.C. By the way, at the time that's where I grew up. Whose parents would only let them read Classics Illustrated. Wow. So when they came to visit us, they basically spent the entire two weeks their summer reading vacation comics. in our bedroom reading the comics because I had hundreds of comics on a shelf up in my closet. Wow. And. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'll say this. You might be jealous of me for having met Kirby and known him a little bit, but I will say I'm kind of jealous of you, Kelvin, for getting to read this stuff at a formative age. And, you while know, it was coming out. While it was coming out. And, I mean, to read the Fantastic Four as it was coming out, I mean, Jesus, that it must was have pretty been awesome. amazing. <laughs> I will tell you, and I am not proud of this, but I would hang around my classroom when kids left because, you know, kids, I'd say in those days, you would kind of leave stuff. You know, you had to go to the little yeah. desk Kids with the thing. Kids always do that. stuff. I would hang around and oh. see if people had left comics in oh, the thing. Oh, And I would, I would steal them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the other I, hand, I, they had already left them behind. Shameless. They probably would get thrown out anyway. So, <laughs> I was shameless. Well, this was at the end of the day, not the end of the semester. I would wait around and see who pe- who, what people had in their desk because they might have some comics that I didn't have. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I remember, yes, but I do remember, I mean, Marvel... The excitement over Marvel Comics, I remember sitting around and groups of us just, basically, we were through with DC. Now, a couple of years later, we started to come back. DC Comics started to get a little better again. Uh, but I tell you, through most of the 60s, uh, there was really, in my neighborhood, there was pretty much a disdain. Of, now, did you, you only read DC did Comics. Did you read any of his DC stuff? Did you read? Now, I will say, as we moved into the 70s, I admit, I drifted away from mainstream superhero comics. Uh, I got a little involved in underground comics. Uh, I was interested in that, but I kind of dropped comics for a while. Uh, and until, you know, then I got, you know, I drugged, you know, I started getting into the undergrounds and reading a little bit of that. But that's a whole other story that we can bore, I can, we can bore you with on another time, podcast. In our next six months, we'll do our special underground comics special. But, but Marvel yeah, and not? Jack Kirby really lit up. That, that, that's what made me the comic book nut I am. Kate? Oh. Uh, yes, well, I was, I was not <laughs> in comics while Kirby was alive. Were you even born yet? Kate? Yes, I was born, <laughs> but I was not reading comics. I started reading comics about three years after Kirby died. So, you know, it was sort of a post-Kirby era. But I have to say that, you know, having gone through and read a hell of a lot of DC and Marvel comics, I find again and again that the truly weird and wonderful bits of world building things that are just so surreal and delightful the, the massive creativity a large percentage of that has a genesis in Jack Kirby that he was the guy that really brought that to life um, and it's, it's him and then it's it's people who were clearly like influenced by him working in his tradition who were just screw it giant galaxy god alien things eat <laughs> planets why not it's there's a certain whimsy and insanity that's just so contagious, which I feel is the hallmark of what Kirby brought. I know, you know, in a legacy. Another thing is even looking at his work. If you compare his work to his contemporary comic book artists, I mean, nobody drew superheroes the way he did. 
they were so much like nobody drew fight scenes with the dynamism and the energy that he did and and you know afterwards everybody picked up on the way that he drew them I mean he drew people standing with their feet you know 10 feet apart I mean he drew people in these poses I mean nobody's ever surpassed them but I mean people picked up on that and I mean that whole vocabulary of superhero comics came from Kirby I will say this the, the, the one figure at Marvel at that time that was on a basis close was uh, Steve Ditko. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Ditko, Ditko his had his own ability to generate uh, just dynamic uh, panel action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, he was able to draw... He, he brought an athleticism mm-hmm. to superhero fight scenes that I had never really seen before. I mean, so... But Kirby still was on a whole other level. Right, right. And it's I mean, a whole he, other he level. Certainly and Ditko had very similar uh, woes to Kirby, although he went in a completely different direction yes, with them. Yes. Yeah, he didn't get along with Stan either, so, you know, make of that no. what you want. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why we revere Kirby now is not only because he was this influential figure who created genre after genre in comics, but because he just never had the justice he deserved yeah. in his lifetime. But not only that, that he was aware that he never had the justice that he deserved, that he fought for it. A- absolutely. And that his, he spoke up. And his genius really highlighted the, the failings, uh, really, of the industry to take care of its creative people. It did. It did. The way that Kirby became a real figurehead of the creator rights movement was with the issue of his artwork. Now, mm-hmm. basically, Marvel had all this artwork, and Marvel had never taking care of things and to this day they're still not taking care of things because they move around so much and they're so cheap so they don't keep records very well they don't you know they have to take a lot of shortcuts they don't have good archives and so they basically had all this artwork sitting in a famous room in their office right next to the freight elevator and people would steal it and everyone had gotten part of their artwork back except Jack and the reason why was because they wanted him to sign uh, a paper that said he gave up all rights to ownership. Now, the reason why this is even an issue is because, despite a court ruling that we'll get to in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, basically Marvel didn't have really strong contracts. They had a little voucher that was printed on the back of the check that said, if you endorse the check, you were signing the contract. Mm-hmm. And um, courts actually differ on whether that is, uh, in fact, a legally binding work for hire contract. Um, but, uh, you know, Kirby had uh, rebelled against this, and he was being asked, in order to get his artwork back, he was being asked to sign this document, which he found, uh, and Roz found, very onerous. So it became a thing. Why should Jack not get his artwork back? And meanwhile, it was being stolen. Mm-hmm. So, as you can guess, this became, among the younger creators, a real cause celeb. And uh, people, there was this panel that I alluded to earlier. Uh, the pressure on Marvel's management at the time was intense. And um, finally, as Kate said, finally he did get his artwork back. Well, and, but only what, 2000. What, 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 what was, was left? left. Yeah. What was left. And of course, by selling it, he was able to, um, you know, uh, recoup some of his money. I mean, it was a good you choice. You just of wonder income. where all this lost Kirby artwork is. I mean, yeah. what percentage of the original Kirby artwork that is seen on people's walls, that is exhibited in museums, like, which of those came from the collection that Kirby got back, and which of those came out in the freight elevator? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who have their own ideas about all that, but, um, you know, of course, you a lot of it, of course a lot of it was destroyed as well, so, yes. you know, over the years. But um, anyway, I mean, so that was sort of part of it. Um, you know, Destroyer Duck was another rallying point. Um, Steve Gerber had also gotten... 
uh, shafted by Marvel, or uh, you know, shafted by the system that existed, mm, yeah. and that he had created Howard the Duck, and uh, you know, just he created the character. He sat down, he said, "I'm going to do a duck called Howard, and here's who he is, and what he is, and that's it." You know, and I mean, I think even in all this talk of Stan and Jack, it, you know, neither of them have ever equaled separately what they did together. It's like the mm. Beatles or Monty Python. You know, they just did it the best together. However. If you look at Jack Kirby's career, in his long career, he just kept on creating characters. You know, Stan does not. <laughs> Can you name have another? Can you name another character yeah. that he's created yes. with anyone other than Steve Ditko that everybody even uh, remembers? Which, uh, by the way, Jack Kirby claimed he created Spider-Man. Yeah, well, now, that's true. Now this is part <laughs> well, of the. Oh dear! But this is part of what happened, and you know, this is part of why it became a problem. Is that as Jack got older, you know, people's memories aren't that great, and he began to really claim that he did it all. And, I mean, I don't think that's fair either, but, I mean, I think he was just driven around the bend by all this, you know, this battle that he'd had all along. And uh, he began to say that Stan had done nothing at all, and, you know, people kind of had to, you know, grin and bear it as Jack said these things, because it was pretty obvious that Stan had written the dialogue. I mean, that was not... If you read, um, you know, uh, if you read Mr. Miracle, it was pretty clear that Stan had written the dialogue. But, um, you know, it still became, like, when when Jack got his art back, I mean, that was kind of the, Mm. the, you know, happy ending there, even though there had been so much suffering before that. And, And proof that if you kept at the big company sometimes not always but sometimes you might have a victory right. however uh, in the aughts there became the lawsuit era uh, where everybody was suing to get their recapture yeah. rights and now mm-hmm. the most famous is Siegel and Schuster and uh, that battle is ongoing mm-hmm. one of the most savage showbiz uh, IP ba- legal I'll, battles of I'll, all time we'll have to schedule a whole other yes, podcast that could be just a whole, for that we could just go over all the, all the court proceedings um, you know, a Siegel and Schuster special yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know at this time Joe Simon had sued to get yes. Captain America back um, mm-hmm. there are several other lawsuits that were not publicized where a lot of people were mm-hmm. trying to get back their, our, their characters uh, Gary Friedrich with Ghost Rider famously mm-hmm. um, um, and at this point, uh, the Kirby estate did uh, file a lawsuit to recapture the rights to the characters uh, in 2000, under... 2009, in, I believe In 2009, was. yes, mm-hmm. uh, under the same kind of copyright reversion, claiming mm-hmm. that uh, they had not been uh, created mm-hmm. under work for hire. Yes. Now, where this uh, stands now, they have the same uh, lawyer, Mark Toberoff, as mm-hmm. is representing the Siegel and Schuster families. Um, where this stands now is that in July of 2011, uh, pretty much a complete... Um, ruling against Kirby. I mean, yeah, not it, pretty much. It was. Oh, it, it was, was a, a summary judgment. It was a summary they judgment. They didn't even go to trial. They didn't even go to trial. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, the depositions of all of this have been uh, made public. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons... Can, can you want to just... Uh, just like, the court, the judgment rules that, indeed, he these were works for hire. These were works for hire. Works created between 1958 and 1963. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the main reasons is that Stan was alive. And Stan was there, and Stan yeah. said, I, you know, this is how it was. And, yeah. you know, if you have a living, I mean, Stan is a, you know, a miracle of science at this point. But if you have a living person sitting there saying, uh, I did this, and, you know. As well as documents yes. that the actually the Kirby estate was putting forth supposedly to prove that these works were not for Howard. Right. Which the court states very clearly actually proved just the opposite. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, just kind of in much the same way that Alan Moore has kind of had the parallel 
you know, like people are just so desperate to get, you know, to make a living and yeah. put food on the table. Or not desperate, but, you know, so concerned that, that sometimes they're told, you know, sign this paper or whatever. And, and clearly at Marvel, there's a history of, like, sign this or else. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, Joe Simon had the same thing. Joe Simon had signed an agreement giving them Captain America in the 60s. So when he, you know, sued again... Uh, it didn't get too far. Um, but yes, unfortunately, Kirby... But Kirby had... There are two yeah. actual documents yes. that he signed uh, re- reverting rights to Marble. Right, any rights he may right. have had. Uh, now, against that, however, mm-hmm. is the fact that um, still, Marvel does not have great paperwork. They really don't have. You know, they happen to have that one, which is really lucky that they had that. <laughs> and also lucky on their their lousy paper paperwork is that there were there. It's, well, this may be this is more on the Kirby side. There were apparently no checks. They could not find right. any of the actual checks right. with that legend that you Absolutely. spoke about earlier. That's why they put it. out a manhunt for them. And they yeah, and, and it's sort of amazing that not a single check could be found. Right. But yeah, but you know, that's except works from a, except checks. From a later period by other Marvel right. ar- artists. And, and, but, I mean, this is the basis of many a lawsuit that has uh, been ongoing. And, you know, Marvel's bad record-keeping. Um, the court that they have generally been adjudicated in is very considered to be very uh, company-friendly yeah, yeah. and, you know, very, like, corporate-minded. Um, you know, California courts are the ones that have moved uh, a rule generally for the Siegel family. Um, so, I mean, it's often thought that if Kirby had had a different court, it might have gone might a go, little bit, not quite, go, mm-hmm. not, I mean, not a summary judgment, but I mean, you know, maybe some, some different, I mean, it I, doesn't help that, yeah. that Disney bought Marvel. Right. That certainly Disney doesn't help. has though, the most man-eating IP lawyers yeah. on Earth. Right. Though, Although, though, I will say, I've heard that uh, Marvel is just as, uh, you know, certain people at Marvel were fighting just as hard. Oh, so. they were fighting just as hard. Yeah. I just uh, meant yeah. they didn't have quite as yeah. much money or right. skill behind them. But if, if you read the judgment uh, uh, in the, um, the summary judgment against uh, Kirby, uh, it doesn't look like it leaves a whole lot of room yeah. for legal it, maneuvering. It does. And on every point, they come down that, indeed, those works were created under work right. for hire. And, they, and, then they, and they, they talk a little bit about what would characterize a work as, as a work for hire. And among those are never received royalties. It's sort of astonishing to believe that right. these days. But he never received royalties. And the work, as they put it, was created by the initiative and at the expense of Marvel. Uh, and the court at that time, or rather the copyright laws, have very clear definitions of what is what is or is not a work for hire. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a pretty uh, it, it's a pretty um, devastating court record. Uh, but I mean, I don't think that has stopped this whole idea of yeah. getting justice for Jack, as you might say. And uh, you know, because the, 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 the bottom line is that all of these movies that are coming out and making a billion dollars in the case of the Avengers for uh, Marvel and Disney, I mean, without Jack Kirby, it would not exist. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen some people say like, "Oh, well, they wouldn't exist without you know." Um, Random Finch or Brian Hitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what? Oh, I mean, on. I get that too. <laughs> yes, but, I mean, but, but I, I mean, I don't. This mean guy to... created the comic book. Yeah, industry. but he created the whole, <laughs> the whole concept in, in many movies. ways. And, and not only that, but there is a little bit of contrast here. DC does something very different. Yes, that while they don't recognize that these creators have any rights over the characters. They feel that they should give them some kind of recognition-royalty payment when a movie 
comes out that is based on a character they well, created. Well, for instance, um, I believe Chuck Dixon was talking about how when Bane was in the new Dark Knight yes, Rises movie the, that he got a payment for yes. these yeah, comics. Denny O'Neill got some good money for Rachel Ghoul, mm. and, you know, Marvel just does not do this. Right. And, you know, when you look at how much money it is, it's significant to the creator and, and negligible to the studio. Yeah. So you can see how people might have more hard feelings toward Marvel than they do toward DC on this front. And I think at DC, um, I mean, much credit goes to Jeanette Kahn, if Absolutely. I'm not and mistaken. Paul yeah. And Paul Levitz, yes. you know, uh, subsequently as well, so. to really push and start initiative yes. to, to treat creative people fairly. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're still, uh, you know, things aren't quite perfect today, yeah. but they're a lot better than they were um, Because that. these fights because got fought because people learn from them. And, and I, I think I think the bottom line is, I mean, I, I, you know, Disney loves to go back and look at their their great contributors, artists, and creators and to, you know, posthumously enshrine them in their little walk of fame, you know, after they paid them the minimum wage and they slaved away. But... Uh, you know, I mean, they have Carl Barks says there there is a Disney well, like Walk of Fame on the lot, and they they have a Disney Legend ceremony once a year, and they conduct them. And uh, I mean, I think it's important after decades of pretending they didn't exist, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I think what's important is to keep this kind of fight alive for Kirby. Kirby's name to be recognized and and you and know not for, to be papered over prettily, yes. and not to be papered over, and for for you know for his contribution to be acknowledged and you know even and for his if it struggle is, to be yes and for his struggle to be acknowledged and, and i mean i think like you know disney if you're going to own marvel then someday jack kirby should be in that hall of fame you Absolutely. know or they should be giving i've said this right along you know if disney and marvel were to give a giant endowment to the hero initiative you know i mean there's that, that this is just the original sin yeah. and there really needs to be some kind of you know reckoning uh, at at some point um, you know, just to kind of write the cosmic scales. You know, why do I believe such a crazy thing as that? Well, because I read comic books, I guess. And, but, <laughs> and, and, and if you read enough comic books, you know that almost anything is possible. That's true. And a hero sometimes fights yes. through. Even a publisher I, treating an artist fairly. Yes, yes. yes. So talk <laughs> about a happen. hero fighting impossible yeah. odds. But we're not the only ones with opinions on the subject. And, uh, you know, I spoke with Rand Hoppy, who was the director of the Kirby Museum. And, uh, you know, after listening to all this, you might wonder, is there a place where I can view the great works of Jack Kirby? And uh, here's my interview with Rand talking about uh, what what is the Jack Kirby Museum and what you can do to help the Jack Kirby Museum. I'm here with Rand Hoppy, the director of the Jack Kirby Museum, and we wanted him to, to tell us a little bit about what is going on uh, with that uh, institution and, um, you know, what, what we can do to help it, uh, basically. So, so Rand, uh, it is, as it exists now, an online museum to the uh, tribute to the king, correct? Right. We're, we're, we're uh, an IRS-approved nonprofit, and we uh, our ma- major program is that we run an online presence. Right. And uh, if you go to the site, which is uh, kirbymuseum.org, you'll see that there is uh, a lot of resources, artwork. um, uh, You know, what are some of the, 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 um, the, you know, the resources that you offer uh, regarding the king? Well, we've got uh, a a gallery of uh, pencil art photocopies uh, that have been, um, the photocopies that have been lent to us by the family that we've Mm -hmm. scanned and put them up online. Uh, we've got a lot of it, original art. We have two uh, um, 
actual galleries with Kirby's real folks and Kirby's war, where we kind of displayed various, um, you know, uh, times in Kirby's career where he drew the war or any kind of war or yeah. he drew real people. Um, we have a, 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 I just started up a journal, an online journal. So I, I, there's a number of articles on the Kirby effect. One of, one of our blog presences that we have that uh, tries to be a little bit more scholarly where we have guest um, writers uh, come in and, and write articles for us. Uh, how long has, uh, has this been in, in, um, in existence? We've been around for seven years. Okay. So, I mean, I guess all of us, you know, our, our biggest wish would be for an actual, uh, you know, physical Jack Kirby Museum. Sure, sure. Um, so I know you have a fund that you can donate uh, for that. But um, I, I know you also are planning a pop-up museum. Or can you tell us about that that project? Or sure. Well, that that's what the fund is for. We're mm-hmm. we're raising we're trying to raise we're raising money to uh, open up a temporary location on New York City's Lower East Side where Jack was raised. Mm-hmm born and raised. So, you know, it just, just as a little, you know, three month long Kirby con right, uh, right. in a storefront in Manhattan, um, you know, just, just to celebrate him a little bit. Right. Right. So is, is this still very much of the drawing board or is there any actual, you know, time frame or. No, no, no time frame yet. We mm-hmm. we're, we wrote about 50% of our financial goal of $30,000 to get going. Oh, so right. we're still out raising money. Yeah. You know, I, I can't be the first person to say this, but uh, have you thought about doing a Kickstarter for it? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, what what we're thinking of doing? We're thinking of going with Indiegogo, so mm-hmm. you know, crowd crowdfunding. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, what we opted to do was to get involved in this uh, fundraising effort, just for kind of like the basic rent, legal, insurance kind of thing, right. and then we'll get involved more in. Uh, crowdfunding when we actually have an exhibit that we want to mount. Sure, sure. So, um, and I, I mean, do you think, uh, how, how did you get involved with the, the museum? Uh, I guess the, 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 the simplest, the simplest and shortest way to put it is that I've, I, uh, I've been doing uh, tomorrow's website since mm-hmm. 1997. So I've, I've you know, I, I reached out to John back then uh, asking him if he needed a website and and so i've been i've been helping him out there i'm a big Mm -hmm. kirby fan right right so um so do you uh i mean uh is there anything else you would tell people to do i mean i know you set up quite a few shows i always see you there and um you know promoting (laughs) promoting jack kirby and his work and and i mean is there anything else you tell folks uh on this his 95th birthday you know ways that we can help out or well, you know, in, other than our fundraising um, program, we, we are a membership-based organization. We do have members. If you join, you can. Uh, we have posters and portfolios that we'll we'll send you as a, as a gift. Um, and uh, just just uh, that's pretty much you know what we're looking for people to to do is to help us out by joining and and um, volunteering is the privilege of membership so mm-hmm. if you'd like to help us out please become a member first all right well so there you go uh for those who are looking for ways to remember jack the king kirby there is an ongoing uh project that you can participate in both uh, monetarily or on a volunteer basis and um you know that's very exciting i i really uh you know hope that we will see this pop up uh on the mean streets of the lower east side which are so inspirational to to jack and, um, you know, something definitely to, to work towards and look forward to. So, well, thank you so much, Rand. Oh, thanks, Heidi. And what, I'm going to wrap up uh, this whole uh, podcast with just to mention a couple of titles uh, that you might want to take 
take a look at um, both biographies and collections of Jack Kirby's work. Um, one of the books you've probably heard us referring to throughout this podcast is Kirby, King of Comics by Bar- Mark Evanier, uh, published by um, uh, Abrams Comics Art. Uh, exactly when this was done was about uh, 2007, 2007, I think. 2007. A beautiful book, uh, great reproductions, um, uh, great writing by, by Mark Evanier, uh, who obviously knows what he's talking about. Right, he was Kirby's assistant for Kirby's, quite a while. Yes, so absolutely. It's, it's kind of Great a... Great anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of a very up-close, a personal, yeah. you know, maybe even a little hero-worshipping yeah. uh, story of Kirby, but it really, you know, gives the basics of his life, and the art is amazing, and, you know, it's kind of the standard work for right now. So. Absolutely. And uh, you also, I would recommend uh, Joe Simon, My Life in Comics from uh, from Titan Books, uh, which obviously is so much about uh, the, 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 the work and uh, the time he spent with Jack Kirby as well. And on a more unusual basis, what Whitman, before I get to that, also, I mean, um, you can find some amazing collections, hardcover collections published by DC uh, Comics, uh, of collections of the, uh, of the uh, Fourth World Omnibus. Um, Fantagraphics this year came out with the collection of the best of uh, Young Romance, of uh, the comics by um, uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And if you haven't seen these romance comics by Jack Kirby, I'm telling you, you have to see these things. They are just beautiful to look at. And, um, um, you know, I'd like to mention there's a book that just came out this year by Charles Hatfield, a comic scholar called Hand of Fire, the comics art of Jack Kirby. And he really goes in and looks at his art and analyzes it in in, in depth. And it's, you know, definitely, I think, the you know, also belongs on the standard shelf of Kirby works. And in a really uh, unusual title, and and also a book that that basically you can't buy in a bookstore you probably have to get it from a, uh, a rare bookshop or, uh, or interlibrary uh, loan or into yeah or a library or or or, um, uh, or or find it on some exchange online or or buy it on um, why am I blanking out on the name of the uh, Amazon uh, eBay? eBay eBay excuse me no you probably have to get it on eBay you can probably get it on and use as a used book on uh, Amazon yeah. uh, but this is a it's a collection called Maximum Fantastic Four uh, a completely unusual project, really more an art project than a a comic book project. Basically, this is a book project initiated by the novelist uh, Walter Mosley, as uh, you may have heard of him, uh, the creator of Easy Rollins, uh, best-selling crime novel, uh, President Clinton's favorite crime novelist, uh, also does non-genre novels. Um, but turns out Walter Mosley is a crazy Jack Kirby Marvel fan. Uh, not really that surprising. But he talks a great deal about being completely obsessed with uh, Jack Kirby. In particular, being obsessed with Fantastic Four number one, published in 1961, uh, the superhero team that kind of changed the way we looked at and thought about superheroes and how they work together. Um, he basically approached Marvel with a plan to recreate visually the the impact and just the the sheer uh, amazingness that he encountered when he first read Fantastic Four number one. And what he did was work with a designer and essentially blow up every panel in the book to either a full page uh, uh, or two page spread or a gatefold. Uh, he worked with a designer to do this. So the entire comic... It's strange and amazing. I'm looking at it The right entire now. comic book is in there. This is a hardcover edition. Uh, but it's one panel at a time. 
And what he said is, this is just how I... I was able to get the feeling back that I had as a kid. Uh, and, he, and he's roughly about my age. so Because I'm 60 years old this year. And, and he's roughly my age. So he wanted to kind of... What could he do to get the feeling back? That feeling when you first see a Jack Kirby. And in many ways, I think you'll get that feeling. Because the panels... Every panel is a, is a giant two-page spread. Uh, so um, uh, it's uh, a really unusual book. Uh, I went up to Marvel and I was able to talk with... Uh, with um, uh, Ruan, who did the, um, I'm not going to try to say Ruan's last name. Yeah, we just call him Ruan J. <laughs> but he, Ruan knows hey, hey, what I'm talking Ruan. about. Uh, we talked about um, talked about the book. I, I went to lunch with Walter. Uh, he talked a great deal about uh, how much uh, uh, he loved doing this project and how he was able to, to talk Marvel into letting him do it. But uh, it's hard to find, but if you can find it, uh, it'll be well worth it. Yeah, it's song. up on Amazon, actually. I'm looking. You great? can definitely get used yes. copies there for like around $35, $40. So. Maximum Fantastic Four. Yep. So, and there's also the ongoing uh, Kirby Collector magazine. Oh, yes. Isn't there? Yes, uh, yes. Which you... What you Know, covers all things Kirby every month, or mm-hmm. not every month, but you know, a few times a year, and um, you know, ongoing study into this great man's work because yes. uh, you know, uh, this is his 95th birthday, and yes. I-, I would hope by the time his 100th birthday rolls around, it'll be a national holiday. So makes sense to me, or at least for comics fans. Yes, well, it's always a national holiday. <laughs> For comics fans. So, uh, Jack Kirby, King of Comics, we love you, man. We love you, Jack. And there will always be more Kirby love to come. Yeah, that's right, for sure. 